If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Donald McIntyre and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series, which airs every Sunday at 10pm. Now, throughout this series, we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking, were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their mothers make them into monsters? On today's episode, we look at the case of Richard Kuklinski, the contract killer dubbed the Iceman. He used to freeze the dead bodies in an attempt to confuse and outfox forensic experts. He eluded police for 30 years, but when he was eventually caught, he was convicted of six killings, yet he claimed responsibility for over 250. But what drove him to be such a cold-hearted murderer for the Italian Mafia? Joining me to discuss the case of Richard Kuklinski are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Welcome, Liz. Hi. And also joining us down the line from the USA is clinical and forensic psychologist Dr Barbara Kerwin. Welcome, Barbara. Good morning. Let's kick start into Richard Kuklinski's early life. He was born in Jersey City, USA in 1935, the second of four children to Anna and Stanley but his early life was anything but easy. Born into poverty, both his parents worked hard, but every penny earned was frittered away by his father on booze and hookers. Moreover, his father was a violent drunk and would beat his wife and children. And as forensic psychologist Louis Schlesinger explains, this resulted in the young Richard becoming accustomed to seeing violence at a very early age. I think it had affected him in as much as it desensitised him to violence. He became accustomed to violence. He became accustomed to being hit and seeing other people close to him being hit. He became accustomed to blocking out his emotion as a way to survive, both within the family and on the street as well. Barbara, well, as we've heard there, Richard's earliest memories will be of graphic violence. What effect did this have on him? Well, I think when you look at a dreadful, damaged personality like Richard Kuklinski, you have to look at the early seeds that were planted. And one of the things we know about what I call psychopaths or antisocial personalities, such as Kuklinski's, 
is that they are a toxic brew of nature and nurture. And certainly when you see violence, when you see the kind of abuse, when you join that up with poverty, with sexual exploitation, with drug abuse, alcohol, you have the makings of someone who is very, very desensitized to violence and to hurtful behavior. So, Liz, violence is normal. It's a normal, everyday occurrence for the young Richard. Absolutely. I mean, this household was an incredibly brutal one. Um, there was an awful lot of violence and, and abuse going on day in, day out. So, Richard Kuklinski, he would have learned what we call violent scripts. So, in terms of how us, how we would react to particular situations, it would be very different for him. So, violence was a way of behaving, a way of responding, a way of making sense of things. So, it became part and parcel of, of the everyday life within that household. I think what we also have to look at, and this is the quintessential puzzling question that every behavioral scientist looks at, what are the, what's the proportion of nature and nurture? Certainly what Kuklinski went through as an innocent child was horrendous. Violence was his daily atmosphere. But he already had some kind of temperamental underpinning, some kind of genetic endowment that allowed him to be able to take that in and not seek other templates. Certainly he went to school. He went to religious school. That would have been an area that could have provided him with another way of life. I mean, what we do know is that there is a genetic basis to these kinds of personalities. Certainly his father was an alcoholic. His father was abusive. His father was sexually exploitative. And and we do know that the first-degree relatives do inherit kind of a disposition to be able to extract that kind of violence and almost thrive in that environment in a, in a very, very sad way. Is there a sense that the mother abandoned her children and her responsibilities for the church? Well, she did seem to spend an awful lot of time going to church. And I think for her, that was her sanctuary. That was her escape from, from this home life that they had. And, and she was incredibly devoted to her religion. So that also connects up to the, the other family factors. So divorce just wouldn't have been an option for her either. So she's escaping. She's finding solace in the church. But that's not helping her children's problems whatsoever. Barbara, there's a sense that the kind of Catholic fatalism, that what will be will be, that if it's God's will... Do you think that was permeating the kind of family at that time? Well, I certainly believe that that was part of it, and and divorce would not have been considered by a devout Catholic. But you have to also look at when this was occurring. Richard was born in 1935. That was the absolute worst year, the depth of the Depression in the United States. So even if she had not been devout, the likelihood that a a woman with four children could leave an abusive husband and make her way in the world was about zero. The toxic situation to add to this terrible mess and the depression around the time and pre-war was that his father would often bring women home and have sex with them. And that must have been horrific for the young Richard and, of course, his mother. I mean, how humiliating and degrading. Absolutely humiliating for her, you know, because she she's got this idea of what a good Catholic family looks like, and and behind closed doors, it's it's anything but. But also, I think what's quite interesting that's going on at this time as well is that looking at how his father behaves towards women is teaching Richard something that women serve a purpose 
that they can be used for for various you know ways and means. So so I think that's planting the seeds for some of the the later behaviour that he goes on to display. So we get a sense that his early life, Barbara, is dominated by this violent drunk, this cheating dad, humiliation, the, the degrading behaviour that his mother suffers, and it seems that Richard is exposed to all of this and is becoming inured to this. Yes, and I believe he's also becoming attracted to it because one must imagine that when Richard's father is bringing home these women, he's not beating them up. He may be engaging in uh, sort of attentive behaviors to them, essentially. And this may be the only way that, in a very perverse way, that Richard sees uh, what passes for tenderness or what passes for connection. This is how we connect. We either violently beat women or we sexually use women. So he's getting a whole picture there that is as brutal and perverse as it can possibly be. And to add to Richard's unhappy childhood, there is yet more trauma. His brother Florian, his best friend, and the only person he can confide in, died when Richard was just five. His death was a result of a brutal beating handed out by his father during one of his tirades. He then forced Richard's mother to cover up the crime. Now, uh, Liz, the death of Florian must have been a traumatic event, not just for Richard, but for the entire family. An extraordinary trauma. Yeah, it, it would have been. And I think Richard would have felt this um, quite significantly because his brother was an ally. They shared a, a common experience of a violent and a brutal household. And they would comfort one another when the violence got, got too too much and, and too bad. So so not having that, that person by your side who, who understands who's gone through the same experiences as you, yeah, he's going to feel incredibly alone, I think. Barbara, is this the sense where the young Richard begins to retreat into a very unimaginable emotional state where he if he becomes emotional or engaged intimately in the experiences he's witnessing then he's going to suffer best not to to actually engage with any emotions at all and that, is this the beginning of the Iceman? Well I certainly think that this is the beginning of a conduct disorder for him this is the beginning of him learning how to survive by keeping things close to the vest but I'm not moved by this childhood memory of Richard's because, first of all, how much does a child confide in another child when they're five years old? And how does someone get away with brutally beating a child and then the, the medical examiners are not able to show that? I mean, I think this is to a large degree the beginning of Richard constructing his life, constructing the narrative of his life. And I think that it's easy for him to do because I think he is, by nature and temperament, very dispassionate. Again, let's look at some of the genetics. If you have a father who can be so distanced and so unempathic to the family that he's this abusive, then you can have a child that comes into the world with that kind of lack of emotional equipment. And it just becomes kind of embroidered as he goes on through this horrendous, violent childhood. So I think Richard was on his way temperamentally, and every one of these things that happened to him pushed him further and further in the direction of the Iceman he later became. Liz, we see this that with uh, killers like Richard Kuklinski in later life. We've seen it with Dennis Nielsen, among others, who they write in the, and they reflect and they justify. And to what extent can we believe 
uh, Richard about this incident? Well, we've always got to take them with a pinch of salt um, because although people like Richard Kuklinski aren't particularly emotionally complex themselves, they're aware of the the power of a, a good story. They know how to present themselves as victims, what kind of things to say to elicit sympathy in other people. And this has developed over many years of, of hearing these stories from, from other people, seeing how powerful they can be when you cast yourself in the role as, as a victim. So, so you do have to be quite cautious of these. Liz, that is absolutely right, and it is very powerful. And killers and criminals like Richard Kuklinski become legends in their own mind. After a while, they're not even lying about it. They believe this. Uh, we like to say they walk on snow and they leave no footprints. They're, they're psychological chameleons. Um, even in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual of, of Psychiatric Diagnoses, it says whenever you hear a story from someone with an antisocial personality, you cannot accept it until you have bona fide collateral evidence. Moving on from that, I mean, it's extraordinary, but it's interesting to see a connection. He does talk about having nightmares. Insofar as we believe this, one of the nightmares he suggests he had was a recurring one of falling and being crushed by a landslide. Is there any significance in that, Liz, Barbara? It, again, it's a very powerful story, isn't it? Because um, it's it's putting across this this idea of the the, the powerlessness that we have in in the face of nature. So he he's creating quite quite a grand story there about, about his nightmares. So again, you know, I'll treat it with a little bit of caution. To analyze dreams is the province of Freudians, which I am not. But to say that in, in sympathy for the innocence of the child that Richard was. He was obviously suffering from a lot of anxiety living in that kind of environment. And for young children to reflect that anxiety in night terrors and night dreams is actually totally normal. It would be more abnormal if he wasn't showing any kinds of anxiety being in that kind of a household. In respect of actually witnessing the murder, if that's what it was, is this the first incident, Liz, where he's learning how he can get away with murder, if I can present it that way? I tend to look at this event in in a different way in terms of, of what it represents for his story and his narrative. But but these ideas of dreams and of, of the, the death of his brother and his interpretations of them, he's basically talking about a family in which he's not able to survive outside of it at this point in time because he's a young child. But he's having an awful time of it within the family so where he's got nowhere to turn children can escape to these scenarios these fantasies where they feel that they do have some control. I think there's also the concept of children who come from these horrible environments because it should be said that most children who come from these terrible environments survive and they don't become serial killers and hitmen because they have other outlets they do tolerably well in school or they have another family member or they know somebody in the neighborhood. Richard was a large kind of, I think, goofy kid. He probably had attention deficit disorder and some type of learning disorders. So he wasn't even even getting that kind of positive attention or nurturance in school. So Richard was really trapped. That was the only world that he really lived in and the only world he had to adapt Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Two. In respect of adaptation, when Richard was 10, his feckless father abandoned the family and his mother and siblings are forced to move to a poor housing project for low-income families. Um, Barbara, poverty is a theme here, and particularly now with the absent father, you know, and the dysfunctional family there. They're in the projects. You know, is he now driven by money? Does he see money as his goal? Is this seed being sowed now as he sees the poverty all around him? Well, I think a key to Richard's personality is the craving and the need for power and for control and for the security that money offers. And this drives a lot of his behaviour. Now, his mother grows frustrated at their situation and takes out her anger on her children and she often beats her children and shows Richard no or zero emotional support comfort or love. And uh, I suppose having been beaten by his father now, being beaten by his mother, Liz, is this more significant, being beaten by the mother? I think he was he was hoping, he was clinging onto the idea that his mother underneath it all might be a good person and that, that actually it's, it's the father that's the negative influence within the family. But even when he's gone, you know, he's left with this incredibly violent mother who, you know, perpetrates some terrible acts against him. So... I think he he had that expectation that she was a victim, that she was potentially loving and that there was some hope. But I think that that all disappeared, didn't it? Richard's mother is now frustrated. The abusive father is gone and there's maybe momentary relief. And then the reality of their really poverty situation dawns on them. And what generally happens in an abusive family where there are two parents, Even if the parent who is the non-abuser is neglectful, is not loving, they look so much better than the overtly violent parent that the child sometimes idealizes that parent. So Richard may have looked at his mother like a saint and martyr. Certainly he would have had all the Catholic iconography to look at her that way. And then suddenly she betrays him the betrayal, the message that you can't trust anyone and you can't trust women in particular. They will take your heart out. They will betray you. And I think that was a very, very important piece in what developed later in his personality. He describes his mother as cancer and whipped cream. 
Yeah, it's a, an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? A real kind of juxtaposition between, you know, somebody who is parasitic and is feeding off you whilst at the same time, you know, she's she's the possibility of, of something else, of something good. And punctuating this, Barbara, is of course that he's now um, suffering violence from the gangs, these kind of racial gangs, immigrant gangs, the, the Irish other gangs in the locality. And it appears that he feels he can't be safe anywhere. So he's feels as if he's got no sense of control, no sense of stability whatsoever. Well, I think what he's learned is, as he's growing, as he's maturing, is that you have to be the meanest kid on the block, that you have to strike first, you have to get them before they have a chance to get you. Beaten up at home and bullied by local gangs, Richard took out his anger and frustration on the local stray cat and dog populations. He would kill and torture these animals, often in despicable and horrific ways. Why did he do this to these poor creatures, Liz? Well, this is somebody who's been learning some violent templates and violent scripts, but he's not at a point in his life where he can be violent towards other people and and not risk some kind of retribution or, or, or getting a beating back from them. So these are the only creatures that he can be violent towards without any comeback towards him because he sees that as the only way he can express Well, yes, cruelty towards animals at an early age is one of the major predictors of later really violent behavior. But I think what you're also seeing is not only is he exercising power and control, is he acting out this anger, is he bullying these small innocent creatures that you might say are sort of stand-ins for what he was as a child, but he's already got that deficit in tenderness. Most children are moved by small puppies and kittens and young men, and they're certainly not moved to violence. He's already got these violent, murderous impulses that are overriding whatever small grain of tenderness may still be left in him. And observing this kind of behaviour from the outside, this is the point at which he's turning from an innocent victim into an aggressor. He's externalising his trauma. He's taking it out on other beings. and, And that's not something that he ever puts the brakes on. And what's interesting about this also is that this would be, to a clinician, to somebody who was a rehabilitator, the point at which the last window of opportunity in which Richard Kuklinski could have been saved. And after this, according to his own diaries or his own narrative, he crossed a line. And in 1948, Richard becomes a murderer. According to himself, he beats up one of the local kids who had been bullying others, but he went too far. And rather than just teach him a lesson, he in fact killed him and left him for dead. According to Kuklinski, the police investigated but no one was arrested. Again, do we believe this story and do we think that he wanted to kill? I'm I'm vaguely persuaded by this, Liz. Again, another powerful story. It's the first major physical victory that he's had over another person. It's against a bully. It's quite interesting, Mm. is it? The the justification there. It's not against some innocent, it's against a bully. Exactly. And, And we're seeing quite a bit of righteous rage going on here. So he's the hero in this story. It's good over evil. It's somebody who who's humiliated him and humiliated others and and he's getting vengeance and control, but he's doing so for the right reasons. So it's the spin that he puts on this story that makes me slightly skeptical of it. I totally agree with Liz. I think that he's beginning to spin the narrative here, but I also believe that he's beginning to blur his own perceptions of reality. 
I don't know that he killed this young man. I'm very skeptical that, again, they must have the most stupid police department in the world there, <laughs> that this is the second murder that they are not able to solve or even find worthy of investigation. But I think he may have really seriously assaulted this other kid. But I don't think he murdered him, but I think in his mind it allowed him to go on to the fantasy of, I went this far, and now it's a dress rehearsal. I could go further. And what relief and what power and what compensation could I get the next time I'm going to go further? I think it was at the psychological point at which he gave himself permission to go all the way. Richard Kuklinski was now a murderer, if not in fact, certainly in his mind. He seemed to like the rush of killing, or at least assaulting and seriously, and it appeared he wanted more. To this end, he found, and had found, the perfect career. He became a mafia hitman. But how did this first murder, or certainly violent incident, lead him to becoming a multiple murderer? Here's Professor of Psychology Craig Jackson. Kuklinski learned that by violence... The problem ended and that he also got away with it. And because there was no comeback, there was no recourse where he was held accountable for this death, he learned that violence can solve problems and you can get away with it. And we know, as psychologists and experts on human behaviour, that the child is father of the man. And what you do in your childhood will predict what you do in your adult life. And if you do something that's got positive consequences, which makes a problem go away, and there's no negative downside, there's no negative outcome to what happened, then that behaviour is much more likely to be repeated again and again and again. Take into account what we just heard, Liz, it seems a big jump from killing or assaulting seriously one person, which may be fact or part invention, and then this big leap into a professional hitman. Now, we, we know he was a prolific professional hitman. We know that. And we're not too sure about this uh, murder. But how did those two join up? Yeah, how did these opportunities you know, arrive in his life? How did they present themselves to him? Well, he, he started pirating pornographic videos, didn't he? And through those activities, he, he came onto the radar of, of the, the local mafia individuals. That, I think, opened up this, this whole new social environment for him, a whole new network of, of people who had, you know, similar to him, that lack of, of emotional depth and complexity and conscience. I suppose Barbara, I mean, he was the archetypal kind of security guard. You know, he was quiet. He didn't say much. He was silent. You know, he sat in a room. He listened rather than spoke. So he would have been attractive as somebody in that mode anyway. But it's quite a leap to see him going into and seeing murder as a business. Well, I think in mafia parlance, he was really a goon. He was the muscle man. I think he aspired to be part of the mafia. But you have to remember, he was Polish. He, he never was going to ascend the hierarchy, not even to the role of a soldier. He was doing the dirty work, but he would always, in a sense, even be on the outside looking in. He would get all of the brutal jobs, all of the nasty jobs. He would be expendable. But he was very good at what he did, and that's why I think he, he had such a long and prolific career but how did he combine this world and why did he combine this world as being the kind of idealised American family man and with this nuclear family and hint of perfection and, of course, this full-time business at Murder, Inc.? If you really look at the story of the mafia, I mean, at least the Italian mafia in the U.S., 
they're what we would call institutionalized psychopaths, you know, murder incorporated. It's their day job. And they come home and they have very culturally approved, very tight family ties. And that's part of the lifestyle. That's part of their enculturation. So that was something that Richard was going to imitate. That probably appealed to him. That was a way of reinventing and recovering from his horrible family life. Although, in fact, I mean, he became pathologically jealous of his own wife and was abusive to her. So, you know, the identity he gave himself as a wonderful family man was, again, not quite gelling with the facts. So it wasn't quite the American dream here, Liz, or was the American dream, the aspiration, but very flawed. Was there a sense that he was trying to imitate, trying to recreate the, and, and repair the flaws of his family life growing up? I think he was seeing other people's family lives and this, this idea of the, the middle-class American dream, and I think he, he wanted to emulate that. He wanted to, to have a part of that, and he had this commodity that he could sell, violence. You know, it was a service that, that he provided, and, and he was rewarded quite handsomely for it. Of course, there is a debate about what he did with his money. The amount of cash spoken of is gargantuan, like $25,000 for a hit, 10000 here. I mean, that's phenomenal amounts of money at that time. And yet it's not always shown there and people talk about his gambling. Uh, nonetheless, what is clear is that money was important to him. And I think you mentioned before, Barbara, you know, for control and for power and for esteem. Was that all that money was important to him for? Just- I think he was also engendering envy because what good was it in his mind to have wealth and buy things if there weren't others less fortunate? Perhaps, you know, the undoing of the bullies in the neighbourhood, if only they could see him now. What made him such... I mean, it's, it's it's in many ways, an appalling question, but, you know, it is worth exploring. What made him such a prolific hitman? Why didn't he get caught uh, much earlier? And what what was his skill set? Was it just just sheer lack of emotion. There was, there was a, a calculating skill set and efficiency to it nonetheless, Liz. Yeah, he's somebody who is completely unaffected by violence and by taking the lives of other people, whereas you and I would be horrified and disgusted at some of the, the sights that, that would unfold in front of him. He, he wouldn't bat an eyelid at it. It was a transaction. It was something he had to do. And of course, Barbara, he started killing those people close to him, those who knew his secrets when he felt the net closing in on him. Although he was smart, he did eventually start disclosing to the confidant, who did turn out to be, of course, an undercover officer. Well, I also think his cover was there because they would not have expected him to be associated with the Italian mob because of his nationality. And I think also that the world he was traveling in, law enforcement may look the other way a little bit. If one wise guy gets taken out by another wise guy, sometimes they're like, you know, same old, same old. It wasn't like he was killing uh, pillars of the community. As the net was closing in, and we know this was significant, how did he get the nickname The Iceman? Well, the nickname The Iceman came from um, one of his victims in terms of the way that, that he'd, he'd disposed of his, his victim. He'd, he'd frozen this, this corpse in, in the ice as a way of confusing the police. I think it was as to the time of death, that sort of thing. Um, and and that's, that's where that name came from. 
What turned Richard Kuklinski into a murderous hitman? To what extent do we blame his mother, his father or poverty for his future career, Barbara? Well, I think we parcel it out in in equal amounts. I think we do know that first-degree relatives of people who have substance abuse and violent tempers and antisocial tendencies have a higher risk rate of that. And I think Richard came into the world, you might say, genetically advantaged in terms of his impulsivity, in terms of his ability to kind of not express emotions. And then this was articulated again and again in his horrendous family life, in the abuse, in the alcohol, in the sexual exploitation, in the betrayal by his mother, in his lack of success in traditional modes like in school or getting quote-unquote real jobs or being able to get an education. Richard Kuklinski did, in a perverse way, what most formal people do. He found the job whose requirements were perfect for him, and he was tremendously successful in that job. Liz, why did he kill so many? Was it because he could? Yeah, I think he'd just become really good at what he did because he doesn't have those those kind of emotional boundaries in place that, that many other people do have that, that stop them doing this time and time again because most people who commit murder are never going to do it again. They're only going to do it once because once they realise the, the impact of, of their actions, they're, they're absolutely horrified with what they've done. But if you don't have those complex emotions and those, those feelings of remorse and guilt and the ability to see the impact that what you've, what you've done has had on others, then... There's no kind of break on your behaviour. But in terms of uh, detection avoidance, how did he succeed in that for so long? Well, I almost think that that was happenstance because someone like Kuklinski lives right in the moment. It's this, this feral aspect. And I think it's a combination of him being in this sort of, as I call it, the sewers of life. He travelled in those sort of underground circles And the fact that the police were not terrifically looking because in their parlance, the riffraff that he took out were probably people that they were looking to take out. So he made their jobs a little bit easier. So in a sense, he was providing a service, not only to the mafia, but possibly to law enforcement itself. So nobody looked, were looking too much at him. I get in trouble a lot because I often say it's not that we have such smart criminals, but we often have very lackadaisical law enforcement. How did he end up getting caught, Liz, in the end? Well, I think he just, he started oversharing, didn't he? Um, there was that, that undercover law enforcement official who, who he, he was not aware of his true identity. Isn't, and it, isn't it a sense that a lot of these people, there always needs to be a confessor? In this case, he had planned to kill the confessor, but he didn't quite get around to it quite soon enough. No, it was there was an issue around poisoning, wasn't there? And and I think he tried to kind of change his MO a little bit in dispatching some of the people who were in closer social proximity to him. And that's where, where he slipped up. He wasn't sticking to what he knew. Well, I suppose, Barbara, you know, in terms of, as you said, there was a crossing the line moment where he becomes responsible for his own actions. But reflecting upon his childhood, you wouldn't wish that upon anybody, really, could you? I mean, you, so to what extent is his childhood and the, uh, his mother and his father, those actions, turn him into the murderer he became? Well, I think he learned that violence was a way to be effective in his life. 
I think if he had come into the world with whatever his psychological fragilities were, whatever his impulsive genetic endowment was, and he had been in a solid family with nurturing parents, what we might have seen with Richard Kuklinski was sort of a marginal guy who got a you know, low-level job and kind of eked his way through life. But he found a way that he could become a star. And I think part of how he slipped up was that using an addiction model, he was craving the envy. He was craving the adulation of people. He was showing how smart and how powerful he was. And after a while, killing was no longer doing it for him. So he needed to make sure that somebody could know what he was doing and could admire it. He was really fabricating and confabulating this whole narrative of himself as the Iceman. So being the world's greatest hitman is one thing, but if no one else knows about it, well, what's the point? Is that the end of the road really for him, Liz? That's incredibly true, particularly in terms of this situation. So it's not it's not enough to be a character. You've got to perform that character to an audience. And, and I think that was his downfall. And Barbara, a final word to each of you. If you can sum up the Richard Kuklinski case for us. Well, I think Richard Kuklinski was kind of a core sample of the worst in the violence and the greed and the domestic troubles, that's the underside of American society, that we make heroes like serial killers and mafia hitmen and, and bank robbers like, you know, that we had in the 20s as our antiheroes. And he just was the latest model in that whole line of John Dillinger's and Bonnie's and Clyde's and, and all of the other people that fill our television screens and our novels and our newspapers. Liz? This case is a, it's a really interesting one because here's an individual who's come into the world having been dealt a really bad hand of cards, could have turned that around. And, and it's looking at the things that could have turned it around for him. So, so yes, he's, he's got those individual issues. He's got those family issues going on. But also the wider community. The wider community didn't do anything to, to counteract that negative childhood experience. And also looking at social institutions as well. I mean, they've all completely failed in this example. So religion, education, family, all of those, those other huge overarching structures that, that often are incredibly influential in all all of our lives just were not coming into place for him. Well, that was the story of Richard Kuklinski. After a killing spree lasting 30 years and resulting in allegedly over 250 murders, Richard Kuklinski was eventually caught by the police. He was convicted of five murders and died in prison in 2006. Well, thank you to my guest, uh, Professor Elizabeth Yardley and Barbara Kerwin. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of murderers and their mothers, Richard Kuklinski on CBS Reality. Next Next time, we'll be looking at the case of the Sandy Hook shooter, Adam Lanza. From me, Donald McIntyre, it's goodbye and thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.